Hello, everyone. Truthfully, truthfully, it's good to be with you. This is Danny Haifong. I wanted to come on for a brief, brief live stream again. You are watching Danny Haifong on the Left Lens YouTube channel. And I wanted to come on because essentially I am in the middle of a move. I am about to transition and then I'm going away for a week beginning on the 17th. So it is unlikely that Margaret and I will be able to come together due to her work schedule for the next several weeks. And Black Agenda Report is figuring out logistical matters and issues and trying to resolve matters as we move forward after the untimely and very sad death of our mentor and our leader, our executive editor, Glenn Ford. So we are working things out and we plan on an issue on the 18th of August. And so, but I wanted to come on here and just let you know, first and foremost, that um, we are likely, Margaret and I, not coming together. So I got this little hair man i hate when hair is in that in between stage you know where it's like just growing in good and the humidity is crazy out here in the city i don't know if anyone can relate but the humidity is crazy so my hair is all over the place anywho uh good to be with you all i wanted to just be on with you briefly if any of you are viewing this on facebook or on twitter come on to the youtube like and share and all of that good stuff. Subscribe if you are on Twitter or if you are on Facebook. Go to the YouTube channel, The Left Lens, and watch from there. So, in a sense, I wanted to address a few things. And let's just get right to it. So, okay, where do we begin? Last time I was on here with you, I said I was working on an article for Mint Press News, and that article was on the politics of spectacle in relation to the squad, Cory Bush, the Cory Bush-led protest. Before I get into that, though, one other small caveat with this stream there's a lot of construction going on in the building that I'm moving out of, which is the one that I am streaming from right now. And if there is a lot of noise, I'm going to turn the gain down from my microphone. I'm speaking quite loud, actually, because I'm trying to block out the noise if it should come. Um, and so that's why I'm speaking this way. So if I have any audio issues at all, just let me know and I will try to fix that. But we could be disturbed by some banging and drilling and it's quite annoying. It's been happening all day. I'm working from home right now as well. So sometimes I will be checking periodically my phone. Um, that's just the way of the world right now in this COVID-19 disaster that we are living in. So anyway, those are just a few things I wanted to let you know about before I get started. And so here we are after the last stream. I think that was a little over a week ago. I spoke about what I thought of the so-called protest that was happening on the steps of Capitol Hill. You had Cori Bush and the rest of the squad, at least a lot of them, going out for photo opportunities. You even had people uh, like uh, Adam Schiff go out to the protest and get photo ops with Jesse Jackson. Uh, you had essentially Joe Biden respond. I'm not even sure if he was responding to this wholly, but responding to the overall crisis situation of the eviction moratorium expiring by instituting a partial eviction moratorium for those areas that are considered hard hit by COVID-19. Now, the Delta variant and the way that this virus is spreading due to the U.S.'s completely inadequate and incompetent response, neglectful response, is creating a situation where most parts of the United States are now considered COVID-19 critical or areas that are really heavily hard hit right now. So 
This eviction moratorium is supposed to cover 90 plus percent of all renters, supposedly. But of course, there were those few days uh, where there was no eviction moratorium. And it's unclear how many people fell through the cracks, how quickly courts could get uh, mobilized to evict people. And we know that the moratorium in and of itself is very inadequate. Why? Because renters, workers, poor people, people who are struggling to meet their rent, people who are at risk of eviction are at no less risk of eviction just because the moratorium is instituted. In fact, landlords, developers, they have the ability to file for eviction. It's just a matter of when those folks will get evicted and whether those renters will be able to get aid in time in order to pay off the rents and possibly prevent the evictions. But we know that on average, people are in about $3,000 worth of back rent. And that is only set to worsen in the months to come because this economic crisis has not let up. So I wanted to just go over. Um, some people are saying I'm leaving Black Agenda Report. No, I'm not leaving Black Agenda Report. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, we are just having some logistical things that we're working out. Margaret Kimberly and I can't come together for another live stream for a while. Another issue is coming out on the 18th, I believe. I don't know if I'll have an original article because I'm going out of town on the 17th. But I should have something ready for you all. I submitted something to CGTN yesterday. And I wanted to go over my article, which I may use for that issue in Mint Press News on the eviction moratorium, so-called protest. But no, I'm not leaving Black Agenda Report. Let's get back to the matter of the eviction moratorium. And if you're watching this anywhere else but YouTube, and if you're watching this on YouTube, like, subscribe, uh, share this, continue to help us with the algorithm. Uh, I'm trying to stream a little bit more before I leave because there's going to be a bit of a gap for us. Margaret and I are going to have a hard time coming together with my move. I'm going out of town. It's the summer. So anyway, boost this as much as you can. Boost our work. It's good to be with all of you. So I want to just share something with all of you. It's my article on the eviction moratorium situation with uh, a bit of an update. Okay, so I wrote this article. Let me share the screen. And I'm not going to read the whole article because I really only have about an hour here. So let me share. Da, 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 da. Okay, let me see. Nope, I want to show this one. Okay, so you can see the article now up there. This was released last week on Mint Press News. Uh, the politics of spectacle on eviction moratorium. The squad talks the walk. I really like what they did with the title. We had discussed possibly updating the title. And basically, this is the essential message, in my opinion, on what just happened. That the COVID-19 pandemic has demonstrated that not even the most progressive, quote unquote, elected officials in the United States are willing to do what is necessary to meet the needs of the people. So, yeah, this was published on August 3rd last week. Uh, this was published right before. And I mean, right before Joe Biden announced that there would be a partial eviction moratorium covering upwards of 90 percent of all renters. And what really pissed me off about this, what really infuriated me about this was how there was so much response about how Cori Bush did this and we should give her credit. OK, U.S. elected officials in the Democratic Party, no matter who you are within that party, you are compromised. The Democratic Party is about capture. It's about the capture of the left, especially the black left, but all of the left, the entire working class inside of a corporate party. That's what the function of the Democratic Party has been for more than four decades. And arguably, that has been its function ever since the so-called New Deal was instituted nearly uh, 85, 90 years ago. So it really just, I mean, makes me so angry that we have to talk about giving credit to Democratic Party politicians for doing the bare minimum. It is still the bare minimum. Okay, yes, it is not frequent or common for politicians to stage protests. But 
really, what did we see? We saw potentially 100, 200 people at most, probably less than that, sleep and chill on the steps of Capitol Hill, demanding what? The same thing for of what we've had, which is an eviction moratorium, which was a policy that was agreed upon by Donald Trump in order to mitigate what already is an insufferable crisis for working people. Working people are suffering from the ongoing treachery of unmitigated, unrepentant capitalism during a pandemic. There is no rent relief. There is no stimulus for working people. There is no UBI. There is very little assistance out there. The unemployment benefits have been cut dramatically since the $600 uh, per week that was uh, received during the early so-called CARES Act. And we've known that billionaires, the rich, the capitalist class, people like Jeff Bezos, have made billions upon billions hundreds of billions in profits since the pandemic because they have been able to fleece workers even more over this period in a period of just unprecedented disaster. And so the fact that a lot of people aren't satisfied with an eviction moratorium that already is inadequate and already doesn't do what is needed for working people should not be seen as something to condemn should not be seen as something to uh, punch left about, but it should tell us that the Democratic Party is not on the side of working people. How many times do we have to say this? How many times do we have to say that the Democratic Party votes on wars just as religiously as the Republican Party, that there is a bipartisan consensus on austerity and increasing the military budget? that the Democratic Party under Obama funneled trillions worth of wealth from the 99% to the top 1%. That is what the Democratic Party is. And so we have to really reflect on what it means to ask activists, organizers, radicals, revolutionaries, however you want to identify yourself, to give credibility and credit to politicians who aren't doing anything for the people and aren't doing enough if they say that they're doing something for the people, that this is about politics and politics is about conflict. And if we understand what this system is, this U.S. imperialist, capitalist, rapacious, oppressive system, then we know that we need to generate more anger, more ferocity, more mass movement politics into the consciousness of people and not less. I cannot understand this fear that people have of their politicians. I, I should scratch that. I understand it. The fear is due to what the so-called left in the United States has done for decades now, which is a very... Uh, uh, I don't know, cute term that I like to use now, which is they clutch their pearls. They act like the Democratic Party is holding on to something that they need to protect. But the Democratic Party really is working hand over foot with the ruling class to destroy and uh, annihilate the living standards, the conditions of people everywhere. Uh-oh, and now I see the construction coming back. So I'm a bit worried about this. This may get a little noisy. Um, hold on one second. No, maybe they're leaving. Oh, I hope so. I hope so, guys. Um, it looked like they're leaving. I can literally see right out my window <laughs> uh, the construction leaving. So anyway, I wrote this article. Check it out on Mint Press News, The Politics of Spectacle, on the eviction moratorium, The Squad talks the walk. Essentially, what I argue is that Glenn Ford, my mentor, he named something called the Black Misleadership Class. And this class of people, Black people who are elected officials in corporate boardrooms, etc., have not only sold out the people, but have also sold out the vision of what social justice means to Black people. 
And I argue that the squad is not just advocating for a politics of diversity, which, as we know, the squad is mainly women of color and they identify as working class. Some of them like AOC, they identify as refugees like Elon Omar. They identify as, you know, in solidarity with Palestine, like Rashida Tlaib. We can go on and on and on. But it's more than the politics of diversity for the squad because the Congressional Black Caucus have been championing what it means to be uh, what it means to be diverse, to diversify Washington, and to do so without making any substantive material change within the power structure as a whole, really to fortify and strengthen that power structure at the expense of Black people and all oppressed people domestically and globally. What the squad is doing is they are advancing a new, and I think a potentially more dangerous phenomenon, which is this politics of spectacle where activism, where organizing, so-called mobilizing, where movement politics are turned into an electoral arena, where the demands of masses of people for education, for health care, for housing, for their basic needs, for peace, for health care, etc., that that is then funneled into the auspices of the Democratic Party. Because what we've seen since 2016 is that there are millions upon millions of especially young people, but especially working class people as a whole, who are willing to support policies that the Democratic Party has never supported. Medicare for all, a Green New Deal, etc. And all of that energy has been put into trying to elect Democratic Party officials to champion those, po those policies in Congress, in the White House. And what has that gotten? What has that achieved? It's achieved very little. It's achieved a very small number of people called the squad who claim to champion progressive policies but refuse to do what is necessary to achieve them, refuse to organize the millions of people. How is it that you cannot get a million people? I was speaking on the steps of Capitol Hill. I was on of the Capitol building. I was speaking to Glenn Ford not too long before he died. I visited him. He was in the city. And we were talking about this, how we need this uh, moment, right, where we have millions of people on the streets demanding what they need and demanding it from Washington, demanding it from the state. And that this is not out of the realm of possibility. You heard Max Blumenthal on Jimmy Dore and other places saying, we need to be out there. We need to be out on the steps of the Capitol building. I couldn't I couldn't make it. I was going through so much transition at the time. I, I, I couldn't just uh, get up and go, unfortunately. But he was arguing that people should have been there. And I think that's true. But the one problem with that, everyone, is that this protest was not spearheaded by the movement. It wasn't spearheaded by movement politics, by movement organizations. It was spearheaded by members of Congress who are willing to say on one side of their mouth that they support the interests and needs of working people while shaking hands with Chuck Schumer and Adam Schiff when they come for photo ops, even though they are the problem. Adam Schiff spending, uh, receiving millions of dollars from defense contractors to then uh, ensure that military contractors, defense contractors, get trillions upon trillions of dollars, billions upon billions of dollars, and trillions worth of a military budget to work with in order to wage endless wars abroad. Or Chuck Schumer, who is a champion of austerity, of school privatization, of privatized health care, of the capitalist class. He's a champion of the capitalist class, of the Zionists who uh, put on a murderous blockade against Palestinian people in Gaza and seek to completely uproot and colonize all of Palestine for their own benefit. That is what they're willing to do. Shake hands with these people. Be happy that they're there. And I think this should tell us the danger of what somebody said in the chat, astroturfing movement politics. We need to be looking for that critical mass, for that point of inflection, where we can develop that confrontation that's needed between the masses of people and the politicians that serve capital and serve the elites, this 
moment was not that. And I write about this in the article. It was not that. 11 million people were at risk of eviction. People like Chuck Modi, as you see, I cite him, Max Blumenthal were doing great journalism on the ground to basically show you what this was all about. A lot of it was a photo op. And even if the squad, Corey Bush, meant well, we have to understand that AOC and, and all of them have called Nancy Pelosi mama bear and refused, avoided questions about Pelosi and Biden's culpability in the expiration of the moratorium for that short uh, period of a day or two, while at the same time saying that they are there to pressure politicians, right? It's this double speak that we have to be very, very, very cautious of. So I wanted to just comment on that. So you can read about the politics of spectacle. What I claim is that this is a new phase in this politics of diversity that's been peddled for the last several decades as a way to steer legitimate political grievances, legitimate economic grievances that young people, working people, people of color, black people, oppressed people, exploited people steer their legitimate grievances with this system into acceptable means of protest. It is acceptable to get a couple dozen people on the steps of the Capitol building and demand nothing else but an eviction moratorium, not canceling the rent, not freezing the rent, not providing relief for landlords and tenants, for workers <clears throat> and businesses who employ workers, not uh, providing universal health care during a pandemic, right? Because we know that the squad did not support forcing the vote on the floor of the House during Nancy Pelosi's uh, speakership nomination. They also have been very keen on delaying any kind of mass movement around Medicare for all during this emergency, during this crisis that is going on in U.S. society. And I end the article talking about how on imperialism, the squad has always been on the wrong side, whether it's Elon Omar tweeting out support for the State Department's narrative on Syria, which has that country sanctioned to the point of starvation and occupied more than 30 percent of its land by the United States with frequent bombing campaigns and support for jihadists. But Elon Omar says there's a human rights catastrophe there caused by the Syrian government and she champions the narrative of the State Department. We know about AOC slamming the door on Max Blumenthal, talking about sanctions. We know that she believes that Venezuela is a so-called failure of democracy, when in fact Venezuela is under siege by the United States and the UK and the West, where billions have been taken of its own gold. And we know that Venezuela has some of the harshest sanctions slapped on it, which is literally squeezing that economy dry and disallowing the Venezuelan people to continue their socialist project to the best of its ability and its potential, where you have a housing program that's built more than 2 million homes in the last seven years. And that is under threat. Does, do people know that under Hugo Chavez, uh, poor people, working class people in the Bronx were receiving oil subsidies from, from Venezuela as, a, as an act of solidarity, and that had to end after 2015 when Obama declared Venezuela a national security threat, which started this starvation sanctions campaign? No, not many people remember that. But And they don't say anything when AOC stands with Bolivian fascists who were partly, if not largely, responsible for the coup in 2019, which thankfully was reversed last year. So we can go on and on and on, but this is the article. And that's my my thoughts on the eviction moratorium. Uh, just quickly, you know, I am very disheartened by the ways in which there are so many in this independent media space, on, on social media. Um, you know, there's so many who want to cl basically clutch pearls around criticizing politicians, not giving them credit, right? And, and I think we have to really focus on the people, focus on building movements, which then can be credited for actually exerting pressure on politicians rather than hoping 
that people like Cory Bush and AOC will lead us to the promised land because I, I have a message for everyone, anyone who believes in that. You're dreaming. You are dreaming. When Nancy Pelosi degrades the number of people in the squad, the number of so-called progressives in Washington, she is saying that a movement that takes the direction of trying to usurp through uh, the ruling class, her class, by electoral means, will lose every time. And why is that? Because it is their donors, their funders, those that they serve who actually run and operate the United States government and the, the state as a whole. That is what she was saying through her candid and uh, maniacal and completely sociopathic response to being asked about the squad and her laughing and saying there are only five people. She's not saying that it's possible to get more than five people. It may be. Maybe you'll have 10 in 10 years. Maybe you'll have 15 in 20 years. <clears throat> what will that do? Because the Democratic Party seems to be very successful in inoculating, sanitizing, and paralyzing anyone who enters its grips and tries to reform it. That is what we are seeing, and that is what we have to consistently combat each and every time. So I see you know, that folks are coming in. Please like, share, subscribe. Uh, you know, I announced earlier in the stream that it's going to be hard for Margaret and I to come together probably until late August. I'll be in a new location, begging that the internet will be good there, working that out now. Um, see the lighting situation, got to get lights in this apartment, and hopefully we'll be ready to go, uh, you know, at the end of August for a, a joint stream to continue our program. So. You know, I want to move on from this eviction moratorium because there is not much to really comment about. We're basically in the same situation we were in. Working class people, oppressed people are in no better shape. Uh, they only have just a little bit more stability in the sense that they are not going to be immediately evicted or at least 90 percent of those those people who fall under what I call a policy, the eviction moratorium now, which is a product of austerity. Joe Biden and the Democrats basically committed austerity against a policy which costed them nothing. It costs them nothing to extend the eviction moratorium, right? Now, it does cost their so-called donors, their real estate developers, the real estate industry, the big Wall Street banks that um, undergird it. It does cost them something because they now have to wait a little bit longer for their money. But we have to remember that these are the very same institutions that were bailed out, right? By the CARES Act and by subsequent stimulus bills. They've been bailed out. So their profits are growing, but they want more. That's the, that's the, that is the purpose of capitalism. That is really the motive force of capitalism, maximization of profit. And so these vultures, these financiers, they will stop at nothing to get rid of the moratorium because it guarantees them more, even though they've already been bailed out. So we have to just be very vigilant and continue on the path of spreading revolutionary consciousness. It's Black August. Read my article on George Jackson that I wrote in 2015, why George Jackson matters. I can put it up on the screen. <clears throat> Black August is a very important month for me because the Black Liberation Movement and the revolutionary movements led by Black people are very influential on my politics because they, in this country, one of maybe the only, one of the few movements to express real solidarity with peoples around the world, oppressed peoples around the world, especially the Vietnamese during the war, the invasion of Vietnam. So it's a very uh, influential movement on my politics, and George Jackson is... Uh, one of the foremost figures who was a heroic organizer in prison, a revolutionary, uh, a Black Panther, and someone whose legacy spearheaded things like the Attica Rebellion um, and who was assassinated in 1971 
for trying to jumpstart the revolution within prison. So he is a hero of the people. And I do urge you to support political prisoners. Go to Jericho Movement. Write to them if you can. Get involved with their causes. We have Julian Assange, of course, who should be added onto that list of political prisoners. And I try to make the connection a lot between the prisoners of war who've been in there for decades fighting for black freedom and liberation and self-determination like Mumia Abu-Jamal. Also those like Leonard Peltier, who are still in prison of the American Indian movement, who <clears throat> helped lead um, you know, indigenous people in their valiant struggle against colonialism in that peer same period. So yeah, uh, it's Black August. Uh, remember that. Continue to celebrate. Continue to do your work, your due diligence to discipline yourself, study, educate, organize, and put yourself in a position to serve the people. So that is what <clears throat> I wanted to say about that. Um, I'm going to move on because I do not want to continue. I, I cannot continue longer than 445 today. So it is the anniversary of Michael Brown's murder at the hands of Darren Wilson, the Ferguson police. We know the aftermath of what happened uh, after Michael Brown was killed, shot in the back multiple times with his hands up. Michael Brown... Um, sparked the movement, right? The movement for Black Lives, the Black Lives Matter movement, that really took off. I mean, Trayvon, after Trayvon Martin was killed in 2011, there was some organization happening. There were protests, but Michael Brown's murder, and then you had Eric Garner, Sandra um, Bland, and you had many others, right? Um, <clears throat> many, many, many others, too many others to name here who helped spearhead that movement which despite all of its contradictions have moved has moved the especially the black movement but the overall movement in a in a much more progressive direction than what had existed prior to that point and so we have to remember that we have to remember that the struggle continues right the washington post just came out with an article that said that on average still since 2014 the U.S. police departments have killed a thousand people per year. So what that means is nearly three people per day have been killed by U.S. police departments around the country since Michael Brown was killed. We know, at least I've written about this, that at least a quarter of those are black Americans. So way disproportionate, nearly two times as likely to be killed by police than white Americans. Black Americans are targeted indigenous people are targeted to an even higher degree due to the concentration even more so of police in their communities than even in black communities which at black agenda report we always say black communities in the united states are occupied zones they are under occupation by u.s police departments the same goes for indigenous communities those folks living in reservations and elsewhere who continue to face the wrath of killer cops and of course this is part of the mass incarceration state what glenn ford called the mass black incarceration state and i hope in the coming weeks and months that i can do work on the language that glenn ford left us he often talked about the lords of capital the mass black incarceration state the congressional uh black caucus being the black misleadership class and the entire uh leadership of of black people in positions of power as the black misleadership class and we can go on and on and on the Sandernistas being the movement of people behind Bernie Sanders. He left a, a lot of language for us to use to colorfully and usefully describe phenomenon around us. But in any event, uh, back to this subject, uh, I just thought I had to comment on it because, you know, we see Cori Bush. Now she's in Ferguson with activists. And I know that's the movement she came out of. And this is something that I think will continue to be very influential on the direction of left politics in the United States. This question of police homicide, of the role of the police in society. I mean, the police are the occupation force, the domestic occupation force of the United States government. The police protect 
and serve property, private property, the wealth of the ruling class. And overall, they serve the ruling class. That's what the police are for from their origins in slave patrols to their origins in private mercenary forces hired by literal corporations to put down labor actions. That is what the police has always been about. And that's what they're about today. And so we have to link this struggle and continue to link it to all of the issues that we're facing because there is this great divide right now in the movement. We have the movement for Black Lives, which is made of both established organizations and grassroots activists. And the established organizations are not really fighting for all of the issues that matter to working people and Black people as a whole. Right. They're not really on the forefront of Medicare for all and all these other struggles. Well, on the flip side, those forces that are for Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, et cetera, are not really at the forefront, even though I think on the streets they are. But in terms of their overall political agenda and the leadership, not on the forefront of prioritizing a, a more militant and radical vision to address policing. Right. Because we have all these reforms being thrown out there and the reforms have been inadequate or not even implemented at all, but mainly and primarily inadequate. The entire conversation right now is stuck in this. We need to fund police more. Right. Fund police more to train them better. That's the problem. Community policing has been the problem. The community policing was just an excuse during the war on drugs period to put police even more police in communities, embed them in communities making them an even more destructive and terroristic force in a lot of ways. So that is where we're at, right? We're at this point where nothing really has changed, where people are killed on average at 1,000 people per year. That is a human rights catastrophe that doesn't make headlines in the United States, right? We always talk about China or Russia and the corporate media as being so repressive but here in the United States, you have a thousand people dying per year. You have police departments regularly stripping people of their rights, seizing their assets, terrorizing them, threatening them with violence, enforcing racist policies and organizing and mobilizing to support politicians, which will reproduce those policies. How many people know that Mumia Abu-Jamal, a large reason why he's still in prison is because the fraternal order of police continues to organize to demand that the state of Pennsylvania keep him in prison forever. They wanted to kill him in 2011, and it was the movement that saved him. Movement led by black people, by those who are behind the Free Mumia campaign into today. But it was the movement that kept Mumia Abu-Jamal alive, and it was the police the Fraternal Order of Police, the police union that wanted him dead and that continues to want to kill all revolutionaries. They continue to have a bounty. The police are one of the largest forces that keep a bounty on the head of Asada Shakur. $2 million bounty on her head for her capture. She is living in Cuba to this day and she will likely die in Cuba unless our movement, uh, I, she doesn't need to be freed from Cuba but surely she deserves the right to travel to and live freely in the country from which she was born. So that is where we are at right now. We're at the same place, essentially, other than the fact that the movement for black lives, the movement against racist policing has indeed strengthened. Now it's time to build upon that movement, make it a movement capable of leading a class struggle a struggle against power and a struggle for a different kind of power. Power to the people, power to the workers, power to the oppressed, power to those who are dispossessed, power to those who do not have their needs met, power to those who right now have none. And then we have to decide what is that? What does that power mean? How do we organize people? How do we get people into the streets to make demands? How do we create situations where the powerful have to respond in a way that's meaningful and not just pandering during elections, not just staging astroturfy kind of small protests. Anyone who's been involved in protests and organizing understands what happened on the Capitol building 
was negligence at best. It wasn't a protest. It was a neglect, a neglectful effort for photo ops and to push for a policy through this kind of social media organizing that is inadequate, that barely does anything other than stabilize misery and stabilize suffering. That is where this system is headed. That is what this system is only capable of doing at this point, trying to stabilize the misery of the masses of people, domestically and abroad, because we see the sanctions, we see the wars. But here, the ruling class is about stabilizing your misery, stabilizing neoliberalism, stabilizing imperialism. And until we go on the offensive and put out a real message, a real call out there to pressure those millions of people who still are holding on tight to the Democratic Party, we're not going to get anywhere because our forces aren't big enough to get anywhere unless we can confront our own. The left needs to have a reckoning within itself. The left, the radical left, all of us, we need to be ready. We need to be sparking these debates, these conversations. We need to be creating that critical mass through whatever interventions we choose, wherever our skills are needed. So that's where we are at when it comes to this movement for Black Lives. So I wanted to just address that uh, quickly. And I just want to talk one more thing. I have an article coming out on CGTN about the Olympics. All right. So let's get to China because a lot of people know me from China. Now I have a lot of followers on, on WeChat and whatnot. So I appreciate those who, who pumped that tweet. And I'm glad that my, you know, I'm getting a following on there because WeChat's a very valuable app. It's very hard to get if unless you know someone who has WeChat. Their international restrictions are real. So when I was in China, I was able to get an account. But I wanted to talk about an article I have coming out about the way that the U.S. media and the West in general demonized China during the Olympics. We have to call it for what it is. Just as the continued campaign to criminalize Black Americans after they're killed by police, right? To criminalize their movements, say they're going too far, for example, during last summer's uh, rebellions in Minnesota and Minneapolis, for example, or whether it's criminalizing Michael Brown after he was lynched by the cops. We have a similar situation that happens abroad. War is a racist enterprise, and I plan on writing an article very soon about that. War is a racist enterprise, and the new Cold War on China is no different. And when the uh, coverage of China in the Olympics was happening at the Tokyo at Tokyo 2020. We saw a virulent kind of racism, a a nasty racism, <clears throat> a jealousy, right? Because China was leading in the uh, mainland China. They should count. My politics are is that Chinese Taipei and Hong Kong. If you count all their medals together with mainland China, China, in effect, came out on top in terms of gold medals. That's not how it works at Tokyo 2020. That's not how it is designed in terms of the international norms, whatever. The point is, is that mainland China was demonized all across the way, whether it was this constant need to bring up Taiwan, right? Taiwan deserves freedom now because Chinese Taipei won a gold medal. That's literally what The Guardian published. Hypocrisy, ridiculous. Uh, the one China policy needs to be respected. And the U.S. is actually uh, the big problem in Taiwan because it continues to funnel millions upon millions of military weaponry and political support to the current ruling party, the Democratic Progressive Party. Uh, the, um, the DPP, and that party champions separatism. Now, it champions a separatism that says it's within the Republic of China, uh, KMT constitution, and et cetera. They try to sometimes uh, not seem like they are extremists, but in effect, the, the, the government in Taiwan, the local administrative government in Taiwan is 
the autonomous government there is very much about separatism and the United States supports it militarily, right? Right on China's border. So that's really the big problem. And But the media was peddling this garbage that somehow just because Chinese Taipei won a gold medal here and there, that it deserves to be quote unquote independent. Meanwhile, that's supported by a very small number of the population. But that wasn't even the most egregious form of coverage. The New York Times published something in late July talking about how China has a machinery, an assembly line of training for sports where uh, the government basically makes children work under terrible conditions and that Chinese athletes don't have the ability to compete in sports that involve multiple players and all of this nonsense. It was a huge screed, of course, written by a white person, which it always is, uh, or it's written by uh, some exile figure, some wealthy uh, exile figure, someone who considers themselves to be some sort of persecuted person uh, who now lives a very wealthy life here in the United States and subscribes to every single narrative demonizing China. Uh, it's either one of those two, right? And so the New York Times writes this racist screed and no one challenges it. So that's my next article. But the most troubling thing I think that occurred at the Olympics was not just this xenophobic attack by the corporate media, this jealousy, because I think for much of the Tokyo 2020, I think most of the establishment in the United States thought that China was going to come out on top. The U.S. pulled it out. Basketball played a big role and other sports played a big role in pulling out at least the gold medal count and the total medal count in the U.S.'s favor over mainland China, quote unquote. But the uh, but the attack on China went even deeper. The International Olympics Committee, which has historically been known as a very racist institution that is essentially controlled by the West, they investigated two Chinese cyclists who won the gold medal and wearing pins of Mao Zedong. Now, they were accused of violating, I, th I believe it was Article 50 of the Olympic Charter, which bans any kind of regalia or any kind of symbolism of religious and political figures, um, etc. Any kind of symbolism around religion and politics. Okay, well... The funny thing about this is, is that if you follow the Olympics, you can see athlete after athlete wearing a Christian cross around their neck. Okay. So the targeting of Mao pins, right? Pins of Mao Zedong, while being completely okay with Christian crosses, just shows the racist hypocrisy of the IOC and the West. And we saw think piece after think piece, media coverage after media coverage. This is what happens around China. The entire media picks up a negative story about China to flood the interwebs with anti-China propaganda. And all of the articles said that Mao was a mask murderer. He was a dictator. He was this and that. None of them asked any Chinese people what they thought of one of their founders of new China. Uh, if you go to China and if you know anything about Chinese people, you know that the vast majority of them don't see him as a quote unquote monster, even if uh, a good number of them may acknowledge some mistakes that were made during his tenure. But the vast majority, as you see from not only the way that current China, uh, current president of China, Xi Jinping, talks about Mao and leaders that came before him. The majority see Mao as, as heroic, as a founder of a new country, a country that once was one of the poorest in the world. I do not joke with you when I say that one out of every five children in China used to die at birth in 1949. 200 out of every 1,000. So that is a level of poverty that many people don't understand. They don't understand how China was humiliated for 100 years by semi-colonialism, colonialism, foreign interference, foreign intervention, the United States being a part of that. 
backing the KMT during the Civil War with weapons and ammunition and all sorts of deadly protection and offensive capabilities and also taking part in the opium wars and the opium trade, which addicted nearly a sixth of the entire population, right? It's hard for a country to function when uh, nearly a sixth to a fifth of your population at the time is addicted to opium, right? So many people see Mao as a hero in China, rightfully so, because what happened after the revolution of 1949? China stood up, as Mao said, on October 1st. So the hypocrisy of the West, the IOC, coming after these athletes, the, the investigation was dropped very close to the end of the Olympics prior to this past Sunday, yesterday. But the fact that it even happened shows just how biased, just how aggressive the West, the United States, the imperialist orbit is towards China and how deeply important this propaganda war is and to how deeply important anti-communism is. Because when I mention China, there are plenty of people on social media and elsewhere who immediately begin to argue on the side of the U.S. and the West's imperialist narratives. We can see this also, you know, to move on from the Olympics. I mean, this is across the board. A new Cold War is a hybrid war. It's a total offensive. It's not just about preparing for invasion, which the United States is preparing for war. There are stories about F-22 jets being sent to the South China Sea for just that purpose, right? <clears throat> so this isn't a joke. There are 400 military bases surrounding China right now. There's Guam, there's Okinawa, there's so many places where the U.S. has a huge military presence all to try to contain China. 60% of naval assets, 50% of all military assets are deployed to the South China Sea and to Asia in particular for this containment policy. That is not a joke. That is very real. That is a huge reason why the military budget is so bloated and it's part of the national security strategy of the United States and it must be countered. But a new Cold War is a total offensive. It is about propaganda. It's about diplomacy. It's about economic terrorism. And we see it across the board from the United States saying that it's going to offer NATO membership right, for sanctions against Huawei. I think that was, I don't know if that was NATO offering that or the United, it's definitely the United States through NATO in any regard, in any respect. Um, and we can see that with the sanctions against Huawei, with the constant crying and clamoring about China's unfair competition. I wrote an article about China's high-speed rail development, how it's crushing the United States. The United States has zero, Right. Uh, don't even talk. Don't even say the Acela. I, I can't stand the Acela, the Amtrak Acela train being said it's a high speed rail. It's not. I've ridden in these bullet trains. It ain't the same. OK, there is no high speed rail in the United States. There's not a, a single firm dedicated to producing them. So all this crying about the Chinese market, right? China is not allowing um, the U.S., the West proper access to the high-tech industry, to certain sectors. It's basically what they're crying about is that China's state-owned industries are not up for privatization. China has private capital, but most of it's in the consumer industry dedicated for China, dedicated to Chinese consumers for the most part, right? A lot of the foreign direct investment, a lot of the production that happens in China then goes out for consumers elsewhere. But even those companies have to come into agreements and joint ventures, which are also favorable to China. This is what they're crying about. They're crying about joint ventures that are 50 plus 1% when it comes to profits. That yeah, China wants 51% at least of the profits. Chinese companies, state-owned companies. That's reasonable. But this is being called unfair technology transfer, stealing patents, all of this. Is it not fair for Chinese companies? to want to learn 
from U.S. companies or any company, Western companies, because the U.S. thinks it's exceptional. It's the only game in town. But Dutch companies, European companies, Japanese companies, does China not want to learn from those companies and be able to accelerate its own process of development? Of course it does. So it asks for the ability to learn. And that's what's being called forced technology transfer. That's ridiculous. What gives U.S. corporations, U.S. capital, the right to come into China and provide China with nothing? This is the kind of selfish mentality, this capitalist mentality, which infects the left because a lot of people on the left think this is some kind of treacherous thing. Oh, my God. Got to clutch my pearls. I can't do business in China. I can't super exploit China. Crimea River. This is business is either win-win or it's exploitation. And trust me, China is losing a lot of money through foreign direct investment. But it made the compromise that in order to develop the economy in the country, it would need a lot of it. So the U.S. US corporations run away with billions upon billions of dollars in profits that never come to Chinese shores. But China gets enough where it can take those losses and re, uh, redistribute whatever it is able to gain from foreign direct investment back into its own economy, back into its own society. And that's the big problem with China, economically speaking. Politically, the big problem with China is that it's a socialist country that still has a communist party in leadership and a communist party which refuses to submit to the diktats of the United States and the West. It refuses to become some kind of parliamentary electoral democracy, quote unquote, which is subservient to capital. Nope. China says capital is subservient to the state. It's subservient to the people. It's subservient to society. And that's a huge problem. And we see it with, with, um, with media, too. There's all this crying, all this pearl clutching around. China censors Hollywood. And I, and I commented about this on Twitter. China doesn't censor Hollywood. If you read Chris Fenton, go to Voice of America, I'm not going to expose you to the nonsense. Because Chris Fenton, he ain't worth it. But read it, if you read his interview on Voice of America, he has a book. Maybe I'll review it. Because this narrative is going to keep coming and coming. That China is, in fact, um, censoring Hollywood. It's a lie, first of all. Sorry, I'm, I got to check work. What they're really complaining about, what people like Fenton complain about, is that China, in exchange for market access into China, says, we want to say in how China is portrayed, not just domestically, but globally. Because what does Hollywood do? Hollywood is a racist institution. Hollywood is an imperialist institution. It literally forwards the messages of the Pentagon and the ruling class about the world on a daily basis and has for decades upon decades upon decades. And that's been a very negative thing. It has educated and embedded racism, a racist consciousness into so many people. Hollywood is not our friend. Hollywood is the media playground of the rich. And so China says, we want to say in how we're portrayed. We want to be respected for you to come into China and benefit from our market as Hollywood producers, firms, institutions. That's it. And so that's why scripts are sometimes changed because it's not some white producer, some white guy out there talking about Taiwan freedom and Hong Kong freedom. It's not their, it's not their right. I mean, it's their, they can say it, but it doesn't mean they can exploit market access into China and spread those kind of politics. Again, business has to be win-win or it's exploitation. And so what these China watchers want, they want a compliant China. They want a China that they can both spread racist vitriol, xenophobic vitriol about, and profit immensely from the country's massive labor force, massive middle class, and, and massive economy. And to me, I don't think that that's fair. That should just be obvious, given the history of colonialism and imperialism over the last four centuries that's existed in Asia, Africa, Latin America, the Caribbean, etc. 
China has the right to say, if you want access to our market, you can make whatever movie you want. Say whatever you want about China, just you don't get access to this market. To me, that's fair. But Chris Fenton and these other China watchers, they see that as an incursion on the freedom of speech. They have no problem, though, when the Pentagon rewrites hundreds, thousands of scripts to sanitize U.S. wars, blood-soaked U.S. wars, in order to favor the Pentagon, in order to get technology from the Pentagon for their movies, which is what happens. That's the contract oftentimes. Pentagon gets to look at the script, the film producers, the firms, they get access to the military technology. Last I checked, China hasn't killed millions, tens of millions of people around the world since World War II alone. Last I checked, China didn't imprison Julian Assange for merely telling the truth about war crimes. And last I checked, China is not responsible for any of the ills facing the United States, whether it is mass incarceration, policing, the poverty that exists among workers, the declining standard of living. China isn't responsible for any of that. So China should be defended. And I'm, I'm writing an article, and I do have to get off soon. I'm writing an article about Peter Norman, who was an Australian runner. During John Carlos and Tommy Smith's famous protest, infamous, the iconic protest at the 1968 Olympics during the medal award ceremony, he was the white guy, the white Australian, standing with them with the Olympic Human Rights Project badge on him. He was standing with them because he believed in their cause for black liberation, for black freedom, against the injustices faced by black people. And I argue that we need to do the same with the Chinese athletes, the people of China who are demonized constantly by the U.S. and Western press in order to forward a new Cold War agenda, an aggressive agenda, one that can only lead to catastrophic conflict. When what we need now more is peace, we need cooperation, we need solidarity, we need a new order, a new global order based upon international law and the needs of masses of people, not the domination and hegemony of the United States and its allies. China's on the right side of that question. China follows international law to the T. You can see it over and over and over again. It's party to 500 plus treaties. It takes the right stances on things like sanctions. It has defended Cuba from interference. And we can go on and on and on. It's declared carbon neutrality for 2060. It's the leader in global energy, uh, renewable energy production and consumption. We can go on and on and on about the achievements of China. But the point here is that the demonization campaign about China is all about China hawks, Democrat, Republican, right wing, left wing. They want to see a China that can be dominated, that can be super exploited. So I am going to unfortunately go now. I have to close up shop at work, but you can support me at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. It was really good to be with you even for this short time. Um, I'm going to look through the chat really quick. I don't see any huge questions here. Um, you know, I don't know if there's, uh, no, I don't see any huge questions here. Um, let's see. Yeah, I don't see any huge questions here. So it's really good to be with all of you today. Uh, I just want to get these thoughts out. Uh, the big point of this stream, though, is to also let you know that, yeah, we're, we're going to have a little bit of a hiatus. I'm going out of town for a week, uh, beginning in a week. Um, but I'm transitioning, moving this week a lot. And so Margaret and I won't be coming together. We're still figuring things out with uh, the passing, the death of Glenn Ford and we are trying to get an issue out for the 18th and figure out logistics, figure out how to fix some things. We're having discussions. I'll continue to be writing as much as I can. But, you know, I hope that when I move to my new spot, I can get settled and I can be begin again this process. But, you know, continue to support, continue to plug 
all the work that we're doing. Continue to plug this channel, like, subscribe, uh, donate to Black Agenda Report, donate to patreon.com slash Danny Haifong, donate uh, to political prisoners, be out there, uh, struggle with the people, do what you can. I know this moment is tough, and if you're in the United States, it's it's a really difficult situation, but I know all of you who follow me are, are involved in this struggle and are here with me. Um, you're not just consuming this just for the fun of it. You're you're dedicated to the liberation of all oppressed people. And for that, I thank you all and I give you all my love. So much power to the people, everyone. And I will be with you again soon. Peace out.